Sorry about that. I was just actually, I was doing my podcast and it just overran a bit. Ah, uh, for the Top Flight Time Machine? Yeah, yeah. Nice one. Big fan, sir. Oh, good. Yeah, we were just doing more with the Rovers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I lost track of time. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. yeah, that's one that I've not really, not really followed, but been following the, um, yesterday's hero I've been really enjoying. Oh, good. Yeah, that's that was a while back we did that. It's like we do so much. People are all at like completely different stages. And it's funny because we we do because we do it every day. There's so much, and we've been doing it for so long. People get in touch about things that we have no memory of doing because we we've just we've over potted basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to get on the uh, the history box ones as well because yeah, I'm a uh, non IFS at the moment. I apologise, but oh, it's all right. It's fair enough. Got a two year old, so <laughs> we uh, we do um, we're doing the death of diana the aftermath of the death of diana at the moment which is bit proved really popular it's really it's really uh interesting when you start looking into stories of like the mad things in the weeks and months that followed that people did it's like unbelievable hey, were you involved in that at the time in terms of being in the media and everything no I, ju- I just started work i was working on a magazine but it was like literally i i left university in 97 and i was like in my first sort of job which was at men's health magazine so yeah, it had nothing to do with that at all. I mean, I've got a lot of memories just as a civilian of the time, which are quite sort of funny in retrospect. But no, I didn't didn't have any involvement in the coverage. Ah, oh, fair. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember being fuming on the day that all the cartoons were off. That's all I remember. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of people saying they remember Liverpool, Newcastle being cancelled. Oh, really? A lot. We've had a lot of emails about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like obviously, like what were you up to at that point in the noughties, and how did you end up speaking to some of those bands? Uh, in the noughties, I'd been working in the ma- in the magazine business. Um, I was in my twenties. I'd had the f- first few years of my career. I'd been working on various magazines, and then and then in about two thousand and two, I got a job um, presenting a TV show on Channel Five called The Edit, and. Um, and for that, we started doing more. It was sort of news and entertainment. So it was supposed to be like youth news. So doing proper stories about politics and whatnot, but for kids, not kids, but, you know, young people. And uh, but also mixing pop culture into it. Uh, and yeah, we wanted it to be like a magazine, but on TV. And we made it at ITN. And we were given a huge amount of freedom. It was myself and Anita Rani, who's now a very sort of famous and popular television presenter. And uh, we, they basically just, we were both very young and they gave us like the, the reins to sort of, you know, talk, like invite whoever we wanted on and talk about whatever we wanted. And we just had our own half hour of live TV once a week on terrestrial TV. It was like amazing. It was one of those things that, you, you have it when you're young and you sort of think, ah, this is just normal. And it's not until you get older and look back and think, wow, what a privilege that was. Um, we were both really, really into music. And so although the onus, it being an ITM production, was mainly on news, we, we were always trying to get quite a lot of music content in there. And off the back of that show, we then started doing another show for Channel 5, which was called something like The Chart. I think it was called that. 
and uh and it was just like yeah it was just a chart show we weren't even in vision we just voiced it and we would go and sky made that and we just would go and like basically do a rundown of the chart but again they gave us like extreme freedom and we were quite um snobbish about music both of us in different ways and thought we were like know-it-alls about music and so we would be doing the pop chart and doing a countdown a bit like what me and andy now do on on we do a, a pod me and Andy Dawson do a podcast called Top Flight Tune Machine, which is a spin-off from our main podcast where we just count down the charts of a particular week of from the past. And it was like that, but we would write the most horrible, like piss-takey things about all these pop acts that we didn't like or we were sneering about. I feel really embarrassed about it now. <laughs> but again, it I just uh, it doesn't make any sense that we were given such freedom. I assume it was because no one really watched Channel 5, so the bosses didn't really care what we put out. And while I was doing that, all these things, I, I decided, you know, I wanted to continue to write, even though I'd had my head turned a little bit by TV. So I, um, as uh, as guests on the show, we did a thing about the, uh, the darkness and um, they'd never been interviewed before, but someone we knew told our producer that we should come to this gig in Camden Town and that we'd see the, you know, the... I think it was a journalist from the NME, but I can't remember who told our producer that you're going to see the, the best rock band in the world right now. And we're <laughs> like, oh yeah, right. Typical kind of enemy hyperbole. And, um, and I was a, a little bit sneering about rock music generally at that time sort of thing. And, uh, but I went along and I thought, well, and I looked at them, they came on stage and I thought, this is everything that is naff. Right. This is, I thought we'd say, said goodbye to this stuff in the 80s. This is the sort of stuff that in the 80s, when I was a kid, if you if you thought you were cool and into cool music, that bands like The Darkness were the opposite of what you liked. That was like American music. And anyway, it was an amazing fucking gig. It was unbelievable, this gig. Like, I'd never heard their music before. I'd never seen them before or anything. And I just thought, that is amazing and uh, the next day, I think, so we got them onto the TV show. And when they came onto the TV show, I said, I'd love to interview you for print. And they said, oh, great. We've never done, we haven't done much press yet. Who for? And I'd written a bit for The Guardian, like the features about movies mainly. But I really wanted to write for The Guardian Guide because in those days, in the noughties, it was, it was a really good magazine. It was like my favourite magazine. A lot of people felt the same way. It was like Charlie Brooker was when he started out was writing a really funny column and they had lots of great writers and lots of really interesting stuff every Saturday. And so I'd, I'd wanted to sort of get, get foot in the door there for a while. So I just told them confidently, I'll do it for the Guardian Guide. And they said, oh, that'd be great. And then after they'd agreed, I then went to the Guardian Guide and sort of said, listen, they'd not heard of the darkness, but I'd said, honestly, it's really good. And they said, well, why don't you do a, a general thing about 80s revivals because 80s revivals hadn't happened yet. It was the early noughties. Any, any sooner than that, you couldn't have an 80s revival. You have to wait at least one and a half decades before you can revive another decade, right? And they said, oh, maybe you can link it to some other things that are kind of about how the 80s is coming back. So I said, all right, fine, whatever. So that's what I did. I interviewed them, but I made it into a sort of a wider piece about the return of kind of NAF 80s sort of cultural features. And uh, and then off the back of that, that was my sort of foot in the door with with the guide. And I started writing about for them for about the next sort of eight years or so, I think it was, uh, maybe more. Well, no, yeah, about eight years. Um, but particularly between about 2000 and 
2003 and 2009, I wrote very regularly for them. And a lot of that, some of it was film, some of it was TV, but a lot of it was interviewing bands. And um, I've never, because I wasn't a music journalist, my background wasn't as a music journalist. I didn't have all the relationships with music PRs that a lot of career music journalists do like the, the people who've grown up writing at the NME or whatever, and they know all the important PRs and they, they kind of, I was lucky because I kind of, um, I didn't have relationships to sort of get access to bands, but because I sort of developed a good relationship with, with the guardian, they would just give me stuff. And I think I was sort of reasonably reliable, which was un, looking back, was probably quite unusual for young freelance writers in their twenties at the time. You know, and I know now, having got older and been an editor myself and commissioned stuff, you realise that, you know, a lot of 20-something writers who are freelance are fucking very likely to just disappear or miss deadlines because they're all on drugs or hungover, right? <laughs> but I was reasonably buttoned down and I would always deliver a piece of some reasonable quality when I said I would. So they started giving me so much work. And uh, yeah, I didn't know bands or their PRs, but it'd be great because I just—it was a dream thing. I'd just get a call pretty much every week saying, "Do you want to? Do you want to go and interview such and such, or or this person, or that person?" And I'd just always say, "Yeah." I mean, I'd never say no, whether I liked the act or not, or whether I'd even heard of the act or not, was not really here or there. I just always thought it was interesting to go and meet these creative people because I thought it'd always be a fun thing to do. How excited were you? on a personal level about that era of music like i think i've heard you talk about you know the strokes before and stuff like that um how did it compare for you kind of thing i uh, I, I really i suppose let's think i mean yeah i suppose the 90s my era of being you know a big era of me would have obviously been like the mid 90s and the Britpop era that was when i was a student at university and then i felt that the late 90s became a little bit tedious and boring there was a lot of shit pop in the charts and guitar music there was a lot of kind of overhang from oasis so there was a number of bands in the late 90s people kept saying they're the new oasis and there was for me it was like when you started to get a sort of a what i found quite dreary transition into anthemic rock which i person which i was commercially very successful but i personally was not particularly a big fan of and so in the noughties, what uh, I suppose excited me actually was there wasn't a huge amount of great guitar music in like around 2002, 2003. I'm sure there was, but not that I was sort of motivated by. But there was, I felt that there was like a, a new kind of mainstream pop music that was from America and that was very credible. So rather than shit kind of Euro pop, Stock Aitken and Walkman sort of stuff, it was when the Neptunes and um, you know Pharrell uh, began. There was a there was a period in the early noughties where like every second song in the charts had been written or produced by the Neptunes, but they were like really good. And it wasn't like when every second song was being produced by Stock Aitken and Waterman. This was like every act was being produced by some really super talented, extremely credible, you know, uh, sort of soul hip-hop producers and and so I was really very excited by that sort of music and I remember actually sitting down with a with another journalist who I who I was friends with who I think was working at the NME at the time 
and and we we were bemoaning the fact that the face magazine which had been very influential over me and probably other journalists of my generation in in the 80s and 90s was in decline i think it was shut around that time it's been revived now but around that time it was about to be shut and you know we were talking about trying to convince one of the magazine publishers that we worked with um to basically not re reboot the face but do something similar where you picked up on sort of music that was kind of mainstream in that you saw it in the charts but at the same time you know quite cool and credible and not sort of synthetic and uh yeah we actually ended up drafting sort of like a, an idea for a magazine which i think i called bubblegum and you know and it would have been pharrell and beyonce on cover one and and that was the sort of music that i was really into but as far as uh guitar music goes i did get more sort of interested when the strokes and the white stripes um suddenly became huge uh and i you know i was a, a huge fan as i suppose most people were at the strokes first album which i guess was about 2001 yeah yeah and um and the white stripes then i really liked as well though i got a bit bored of them and then and then I suppose the next acts to come along that were huge after that in that era were the Arctic Monkeys, who were the next band that I sort of, you know, because I, I think that I went through phases with guitar music. Like, you know, I was very into sort of Britpop and things in the 90s and then I became very cynical about it and didn't kind of generally like that sort of music. But once in a while, you know, a, a band sort of cut through and seemed to have the tunes beyond just the look and the sound. And and I guess those two are the main ones that people think of when they think of the noughties, I guess. And from gathering what you said on Top Flight Time Machine, you weren't a big fan of the Kaiser Chiefs. <laughs> no, I yeah, I mean, for me, they weren't they weren't really my cup of tea. I do actually remember, I'm saying I was cynical about uh, guitar music, but I tell you what I loved was XFM in that era. Um, Christian O'Connell was a brilliantly creative DJ. They had lots of other good people on there. We used to, on that show that I mentioned, the edit, we were we were all big fans, not so much even of all the music they played on XFM, but of the output. It was a really cool station. I don't know, maybe for your generation, it does sort of, people do talk about it. I feel that that era on XFM doesn't get talked about enough, you know. Uh, Zoe Ball, I think, was doing a show on it at the time. Um, Gideon Coat, a lot of people who are now kind of you know, quite well known everywhere else. Ricky Gervais, Adam and Joe, you know, great comedians were on there. But Krishna Kull in the morning, I just thought was brilliant. And I think that was an example of a radio station that I listened to for the presenters uh, more than the music. And then, but as a result of just tuning in to listen to the presenters being funny, you were exposed to a lot of, you know, quite good music some shit music that i hate <laughs> some, some music that i wouldn't otherwise have have heard or or seeked out you know uh kaiser chiefs were on there a lot i remember that they were being played a lot but yeah for me i just thought yeah i don't know there were just bands that i thought were kind of playing like there were there were there were indie bands that i suppose you know the sort of lineage of indie bands went from sort of, you know, Joy Division to the Smiths to the Stone Roses and then on to bands like Oasis in the 90s. And there all seemed to be a line that kind of you could see 
where the evolution was and how there was a line that ran through all of these bands. But then there was bands like, I felt that like by the noughties, indie had become the opposite of indie in as much as you saw bands that were sort of like the monkeys were to the Beatles. They had been manufactured. I don't know if this is true. I'm not saying it's true. The Kaiser Chiefs, I'm sure they came up and paid their dues like anyone else. But sometimes it looked like packaged indie that had been made up by a marketing professional, a big record label. I have no idea whether that's true, but that's maybe what it seemed like to me and why I was cynical about it. But I was a lot more cynical then about music generally than I try to be now. I mean, now I'm very open-minded about most music and I'm not. I used to get, and I think it's probably common with people in their 20s and teens, I used to get angry in the same way that you get angry and tribal about football. (laughs) But I gave up being like that about music a long time ago. No, we've had... A lot of people on talking about kind of, I suppose it's like any scene though, where you get the early stage of originality and then people want to capitalise on that and copy it and try and yeah. make the most of it. I, so I don't know if it's the same as other scenes or whether it was a lot more dross at that point, whether people were trying to capitalise on stuff like the Strokes a lot more than they would something like Grunge or something, I don't know. Yeah, uh, there were there were other sort of bands that I thought were, were loosely linked to that. I can't even remember what they called that scene, but it it feels like it was the Strokes and the White Stripes were the two sort of main players. What was it? What what did they call that scene? That's the thing it ended up getting called the Indie Landfill. Yeah, but I don't think... Not originally, I think of bands like, I don't know, English bands like... I think of bands like Star Sailor or the Pigeon (laughs) Detectives or the... um, Cartinas. Yeah, or what was that other one who did uh, Chelsea Dagger? Oh God, yeah, that's a that's the peak of it, Fratelli's. Yeah, yeah. So that that for me was like that was a lot of English fans who were like who you'd always see going as guests on Soccer AM, <laughs> wearing anoraks and being a bit sulky, right? <laughs> and it was like an unconvincing impression of Liam Gallagher, right? <laughs> so that was the stuff that I thought, oh, that's a bit embarrassing that's what i always took to be the indie landfill stuff right yeah, uh, yeah. You'd, you'd see them doing that thing where you have to kick the ball through the hole on soccer am in the car park right that that those bands existed <laughs> just for that item on soccer am <laughs> right but the the american bands the foreign bands didn't seem like that i don't think you know there were other good bands and and i and there was sort of quite heavy rock rock bands that did sort of win me over I remember like in um, the Vines, they were a good band. Mm. And who are the Swedish lot? The Hives. Yeah. You know, um, and that was a bit sort of a a throwback to new wave punk from the CBGB's era. Um, That's what they all looked like and dressed like and were clearly heavily influenced by. And that was, I was too young to have remembered that the first time around. I was aware of it because obviously you're aware of cool bands like Blondie and Talking Heads or what have you. Um, and uh, MC5 seemed to be the other thing that everyone was always going on about as an influence. So I was quite interested in that. And in fact, I went to New York and stayed in the hotel around that time, uh, which was next to the old site of CBGB's, and remember feeling quite cool going for a burger across the street in the place that Debbie Harry sings about in one of her famous songs or another. And that that was very much like the, the thing in music at the time was that the Bowery 
and CBGBs and, you know, that that sort of late 70s, early 80s New York scene seemed to be the big influence on the Strokes and everyone else who wanted to be like the Strokes. And, I, I you know, yeah, I got quite into that. People started wearing leather jackets again and Converse trainers and having wearing their hair quite dirty and like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was talking to some mate the other day while looking at a picture, and he was like, "Oh yeah, that's when I went for six months without washing my hair." I was like, "Fucking, hell, I didn't know that. That's mental." Uh, yeah, yeah, to look like Julian Casablancas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going back, he just looked like a homeless person. <laughs> I remember people saying about when they used to straighten their hair and it used to like smell like bacon was cooking or something. Uh, Awful. Um, what did you make of people like P. Doherty then? Kind of that kind of scene. Yeah, I guess that was loosely related to it, wasn't it? Um, mm. Just because obviously people in my generation obviously well into that, but I know that people maybe of a different generation kind of saw through it a bit, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose I was. I was still only in my 20s, but by then I guess I was coming to my late 20s and I suppose I did have a little bit of cynicism about people posturing as as rock and roll because you get to a stage where you've seen it happen time after time and you realize and you've seen all the tropes and you see you're acutely aware of the cliches um and the libertines i thought did some absolutely brilliant songs really great songs um so i liked them um for their music but i was less enamored with the whole kind of you know um elegantly wasted heroin chic Camden Town scene. I thought that was a bit corny and cliched and yeah, sort of, you know, it always seemed to me like they were probably posh kids pretending to have a bit of an edge. And again, I was probably wrong, but that was, you know, my cynical mind. I thought, I thought that, I mean, I, I thought I've grown up in London, but I've always thought that about any scene that revolves around Camden Town. It always feels a little bit like, um, posh kids slumming it as a, you know as a, as a sort of a posture to see yeah you know yeah i lived in um stern newington for a few years and yeah i'm not around with a few people like that it's just like privileged indie kids basically yeah 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 there's a lot of that about and uh yeah those kind of areas in north london you see it a huge amount um but you know the, the fact is the libertines did some great songs and I used to go to the club night death disco, which they sung about in one of their songs, uh, because that was in Notting Hill, which was where I lived throughout this era, throughout the noughties. I lived there um, and um, it felt like a really good place to live. There was a lot of good sort of nights and, and clubs and places to go. Um, and uh, yeah, we used to go to death disco. Was that Alan McGee's night? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they sing about it in one of their songs. I can't remember what, which one. Don't look back into the sun, I think it is. And so you felt quite cool for being down there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but it's the only time I've had a fight and been thrown out of a club was at, was at one of those nights. So the memories are mixed for me. I'm not, I'm not really a club fighter, but that was <laughs> an instant where I accidentally became one due to alcohol and got thrown <laughs> out. So I suppose that was vaguely rock and roll. All right. Um, what caused that? Just just the beer? Uh, yeah, I think I was just paranoid lunatic. I think <laughs> I don't drink anymore, but one of the many bad things that alcohol did for me was make me like super paranoid. Like people associate paranoia with drugs 
Um, and drugs also made me paranoid, but alcohol made me intensely paranoid. So if ever I got involved in a, in a fracas, it's usually because beer, too much beer made me think that people were laughing uh, behind my back. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I definitely like that on the... Say I was drinking on a hangover, I'd definitely have that paranoia kicking in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like that festival, yeah. Um, but I went to, for the NME, I went to, um, because I was writing so much with a guide and then a friend of mine, or someone who I'd worked with on another magazine became, I think, maybe features editor of the NME or something. And I'd never really been the sort of, a lot of journalists in my generation, probably that would be their starting point where they wanted to write. And I'd written a little bit for my university magazine, mostly about music. And I had written to the NME when I first left university, but I wrote to practically every magazine in London because I just wanted to work on magazines because that era in the late 90s was a massive boom time for magazines. And I was obsessed with magazines like throughout my childhood and adolescence and teens so all I wanted to do was work on a magazine any magazine would do and I'd written a little bit about music so for the university campus magazine at the uni I went to which was Sussex I was I I managed to get an interview with a band from Liverpool called Space right I don't know if you remember I think that. I heard of them did they have like a big single they had, yeah, they had a couple of hits and then yeah. like sort of in the fag end of Britpop and then they disappeared. Um, but, I, you know, I, I was, that was the first band I ever interviewed. It was the first piece I ever had published anywhere and I was like fucking delighted with it. And I sent this piece out to every single publication from the NME right down probably to Cajun Avery Bird because all I wanted was a foot in the door, hopefully at one of the bigger magazine publishers like IPC or EMAP. And uh, in the end, I wound up at Men's Health. That was my first job. <laughs> um, but it was fine because it was like a, I learned a lot and it was a foot in the door. But then uh, it all came back round again because a friend who I, a, a guy who I worked with on another mag ended up a couple of years later, featured to NME. Um, and he started commissioning me because he liked what I'd been writing about music in the, um, in the guide. And one of the first things they did was they sent me to New York to interview Scissor Sisters when Scissor Sisters had first sort of had a hit. And I was aware of Scissor Sisters from listening to XFM. XFM played, maybe it was Take Your Mama, which like they just played it to death. I thought it was Elton John when I first heard it. Um, <laughs> and But I liked it because I, I love disco music. You know, I, I, I absolutely fucking love disco music. And I thought, wow, this is really refreshing because it sounds like disco. It's like not just generic indie music. And they and I remember the, this mate of mine from the NME just said, look, do you want to go and interview them? It's in New York. It's in two days time. Uh, you've got to fly out there. We'll send a bike round with your plane tickets. The record company... I'm not joking, right? And I still don't understand this. And music journalists who are way more experienced than me might say, yeah, that, that was normal. But the record company sent a bike to my flat with the plane tickets plus an envelope of US dollars. <laughs> and that is the only time in my journalistic career I, I, I suppose I could have been guilty of taking payola, as they call it, Right. And I had no, I have no idea. I remember the exact bloke because he went our, our paths crossed again years later, and he was the publicist at the record label. And I rang him. I went, he went, did you get the tickets? I went, yeah. So what's this envelope? He went, oh, that's for expenses. <laughs> I was like, what? I was almost like, I've got to send this back. This is mental. But like I say, 
I don't know because I I never really you know you you you've had much more kind of auspicious and experienced music writers on here than me, and I wasn't in that world enough to know whether or not there was anything normal about it. But obviously, I just took the money, spent it, and then might have like sent off a couple of crumpled receipts to you know back to the record company. But it seems seems peculiar to this day. But it was tremendously exciting to go out there and spend like a, a day with Scissor Sisters hanging around in New York, interviewing them as I went along. Absolutely felt brilliant because they were a, a New York band, you know, who were very hot at the time. It was a it was my first story for the enemy and it was a cover story. And I've I've actually tried to buy that because I lost a lot of my old magazines, but I would like to get that off eBay at some point because it would be nice to have that I did you know it's the what the first and only cover story I did for the NME and it was a band who I really liked actually you know and I went to see them live in London a few times after that and um and I I liked their first sort of three albums or so you know I don't think it was I don't suppose the particularly cool kind of indie kids who love guitar loud guitar music were that enamored by it but for me, it was perfect because it was a crossover between kind of indie-ish music, but, you know, very pop with a big amount of disco. And I, I like that sort of thing. Um, and I thought they were great. They harped, they, they cited influences such as Prince, who's my all-time favourite artist. And they, they harped back to a much more flamboyant way of being a pop band, which I really liked because that's how bands were in the 80s when I was growing up. And I felt that in the 90s, they became obsessed with seeming ordinary. Um, so Oasis were massive. But one of the things that people liked about Oasis was that they looked like they looked like you. They looked like <laughs> yeah. the lads who you went to the pub or the football with. They just went fucking anoraks, you know. And I remember liking that at the time. Then when I got older, I thought, hang on, in the 80s, everyone, the whole point of being a pop star was you were larger than life. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Seventies, you know, people are like David Bowie or Mark Boland. Then in the eighties, you were fucking Madonna or Prince, right, or Freddie Mercury. And then for about a decade or two, it was just all about who can look the most like a dreary suburban bloke who works in the supermarket, <laughs> right? And so I really liked um, Scissor Sisters because they were all fucking larger than life and totally over the top in the way they dressed and behaved, and their music was very camping over the top as well. And ultimately, that, for me, is what pop music should always be about. And then about a year after that, I went back to New York again for The Guardian to interview, um, what's his name, uh, LCD Sound System. Oh, I read that recently, yeah, James Murphy. Yeah, James Murphy. And again, that was, he was sort of, this was when the term hipster was first becoming very mainstream. And he was basically regarded as the king of the hipsters, right? <laughs> he was like from Williamsburg where it all started and was just like almost painfully cool in all of his cultural references. <laughs> and everyone wanted to cite him or reference him or say that they were working with him. And uh, that sort of thing instinctively puts me off people and things, you know, when it's like too, it's too cool that it almost goes full circle. <laughs> and... uh to, and so that, and the Guardian said, just go and interview him. I said, what do you want me to interview him about? And they said, ah, just ask him like what things he's into because he's like the king of the cool kids. And so whatever he's into, we want to know. And I thought, fucking hell. <laughs> but obviously it was a free trip to New York. So I went and uh, I fuck. And this is such like, this is so sort of entitled and privileged. But I just remember having the ump because 
I just had to sit in this sound check for like five hours or something. <laughs> and it was completely overrunning. And then we eventually came out and we went for a Japanese meal, me and him and his publicist. And I just had to ask this bloke who was fully convinced of his own coolness <laughs> to tell me what cool things he was into. <laughs> now, I fucking understand that it was a privilege to be there and it was a great job and I shouldn't be fucking moaning about having opportunities like that. But I remember being a right grumpy bastard on my trip to New York with James Murphy <laughs> and that we, we, did, we didn't really click with each other. <laughs> Whereas the Sis Sisters, it was the opposite. We totally fucking clicked and I had a great time and came away thinking that they were my mates for life. Yeah, with the Scissor Sisters and we were just like knocking around with them for a bit rather than it being a sit-down interview. Uh, yeah, it was like one of those days where they were doing a photo shoot for the enemy, then they were doing other things that they had to do. And I just kind of hooked up with them in the morning and then just spent the day with them. And they were like extremely friendly very kind of fabulous, uh, you know, in every way, particularly animatronic. And, you know, they were just they were just a right laugh. And I was like really taken by them. And I remember asking them what records influenced them, but not in that. You're so cool. Tell me what things you're into, which is what had happened with James Murphy. It was more like I just fucking thought that they were amazing. And I wanted to know everything that they I just wanted to know loads about what music they were into and stuff. And uh, I remember them going, they said that, I remember them saying that the two albums that they wouldn't exist without and that they'd based almost everything about themselves on were Purple Rain and uh, Midnight Vultures by Beck. And uh, obviously I already owned Purple Rain and was very familiar with it. And that was what really endeared me to them even more because at that stage, Prince is a name that everyone will drop now. But this again was a time before some of these artists had sort of been revived as a cool reference point. They might have still been regarded as like just mainstream pop or, or whatever. And uh, I was delighted by the fact that they were like not citing, you know, what what the obvious band to cite was at the time. They said they said Prince Purple Rain and they said Beck Midnight Vultures. I think that's what the album's called. But I remember going to Tower Records on Times Square the next day and buying it immediately on CD. <laughs> And listening to it on my disc man all the way home. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. Yeah, I remember um, talking about the being cool thing. I was reading your yeah, article with Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Yeah. It's quite oh, funny. Yeah, some some of the stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, some of the stuff you wrote in that was quite funny in terms of you said something like he was turning down half a million dollars every other week or something. Yeah, I can't. 
I can't remember the content. I will go back and read that article, but I do remember that being another one that I didn't enjoy. And these are hardly any. Most of them I just fucking really like. I love always meeting very creative people, right? And asking them how they work and getting insight to what makes them tick. And, you know, anyone who's putting their fucking head above the parapet, and you know, whether it's Kaiser Chiefs or whoever it fucking is, I, you know, I've got a huge amount of respect for and, and I'm fascinated by them, even if I don't, even if their output isn't fully to my taste, you know, because um, creative people are interesting. And uh, so I have to say that on the whole, that's why I did all this stuff. And like how I said at the beginning, I didn't really care who they sent me to interview. I didn't have to like their work. And I would try my best as well to be positive about their work, not in a kind of bland way, but there was something positive to say about everyone. And it wasn't about my personal taste, you know. But And so I don't want to sound like, oh, I was grumpy with all these people. But if I remember, I don't, I don't have many... People often say, who are the worst people you interviewed? And I don't have many stories like that because most people are on their best behaviour when they meet someone from the press. But I remember Black Rebel Motorcycle Club being sitting in a suite in one of these posh hotels in Park Lane where they do their sort of press days and just finding it really like pulling teeth because they were so falling over themselves to be cool and disinterested and cynical about doing press. It's one of those situations where they think, oh, we've got to do press, but doing press really cheapens us. And we have instinctive mistrust for any journalist. And you're there just trying to do your job. And you think, for fuck's sake, mate, you know, <laughs> all right, you might not want a beer. I don't particularly want a beer either, but let's just like do what we've both got to do. So I remember being a bit put out by them and then going to see them actually maybe that same night. And thinking, ah, actually, this is just a load of miserable old noise. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were often the other band mentioned in the same breath as the Strokes. But for me, the Strokes had great melodies that even if you changed the genre of music and played the whole thing on a fucking Bon Tempe organ, a lot of their songs would still sound really good because it's really just about a lot. So much of it starts with melody, and some bands are like more about. We'll get the sound and the look and the production and the PR, and that will be enough. But actually, the bands that actually last the distance and, and have a bit of a legacy are usually ones who've like know how to come up with a, a melody that could work almost in any genre. I think the Arctic Monkeys were like that, Strokes were like that. Black Rebel Motorcycle Club for me was just like they had all the gear and no idea. <laughs> now, I remember really like on one of the songs, the big. Spread your love, was it? But yeah, apart from that, I don't know. Love, much, yeah. I don't know much about him apart from that, really. But yeah, it's funny in that interview. At one point, you say uh, <laughs> things picked up when he thought he could see an alien behind the curtain or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes when I was writing pieces, if there was they, they, what you, what I really liked is you go and interview someone and you press record and you barely have to say anything and they just say loads of fucking fascinating or funny stuff like. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Noel Gallagher, and he's like the classic for that. You just don't really need to bother a question. You just press record, and you could just say to him, right, start talking. And then you'll just come away with like an hour's worth of gold that you just transcribe, and that's it. And I'm happy with that. I don't want to have to put a lot of myself into these articles. But sometimes you go there, and it's like pulling teeth, and you think the only way I can make this article work now is to basically tell the story of the encounter with this person because their quotes are useless. So I need to sort of <laughs> embellish this by just making it sort of funny and entertaining for other reasons. 
But when I did that, it usually was indicative of an interview that had gone very badly <laughs> and that I hadn't enjoyed. Yeah, fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another band quite similar to Scissor Sisters, maybe, is Goldfrapp. I, th- I saw you writing about. Uh, were you quite into them? I can't remember interviewing Goldfrapp. Oh, uh, maybe I, just writing about them, sorry, yeah. But yeah, I, I'd certainly really, really like Goldfrapp. And yeah, I guess you would sort of bracket them with Scissor Sisters. You know, it's sort of like... Um, you know, glossy, sophisticated pop music with a sort of a, a, a bit of a disco influence. You know, uh, Robin as well, who I'm is, is one of my all-time favourite artists and sort of came through in that era, I reckon, sort of mid mid naughty, similar time. A bracket then together. Um, yeah, there was great, there was just great pop music like that that I felt was pop, but was still kind of cool, you know. And so it would still be featured in in the enemy or in cool magazines and stuff, even though really I'm sure the artists themselves would say this is this is just pure pop music. You know, this is in the same, you know, line as ABBA or something like that. Um, there was a lot of great female acts like, uh, yeah, Goldfrat, uh, Robin was my absolute favourite. Uh, there was LaRue. Uh, little boots and I loved all of all of these artists and uh, then there was another there was a um, there was a lot of Scandinavian music so there was a great band I interviewed in the guide called the Concretes who were fantastic um, who did a brilliant single called You Can't Hurry Love which I still really love and I remember spending a great afternoon with them getting pissed in a restaurant in uh, Charlotte Street and they were just a right laugh quite quite a large band um, with men and women in. And I thought they were amazing. And I, I don't know what, what became of them, but it was a shame because their first album was brilliant. There was other Scandinavian artists a lot. Scandinavians seem to always consistently have the best pop tunes. Um, there was a, a, a female artist called Annie who I interviewed who had a brilliant single, brilliant hit called Bubblegum. Or was it Chewing Gum? Was it Chewing Gum? I feel anyway, like I know that single, yeah. She was great. And if I'm honest, this is a, this doesn't reflect that well on me, but I just kept seeing her pop up on MTV. I, I had MTV in my home, uh, which at the time felt quite flash. And uh, and I was like, and she just kept coming out. And I, I, you know, I sort of almost like, I think I just fell in love with her. To the, and it's the only time I've done it. And I just went, steamailed the guide and said, I really think I should interview Annie. <laughs> And they said, okay. And then like within two days I was, and that that's the sort of real privilege, but you know, there was zero chemistry between us, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a brilliant song. I loved that. And, uh, and the other main interview I, I was thinking about when you asked me to do this was going to Paris to interview air. I loved air. I still love air and, and going to interview them in the pomp in a restaurant in the Pompidou center in Paris felt like the most amazingly sort of French thing anyone could ever do. You know, <laughs> sitting in the Pompidou Centre with the two members of Air having a, a really fancy... They'd chosen the restaurant personally and it was like really fancy place. And uh, and uh, they convinced me. They said, do you know Paris that well? And I said, not, not really. I've been here a few times, but I don't know it well. And they sold me on the idea of... They were, again, like a sort of French cliche. They, and I think I wrote this in the piece. They were obsessed with sex. 
<laughs> like any question you'd say like oh so uh how long did it take to record this album and it was literally like Swiss Tony from the Farsha. They, they were saying shit like, well, it's like making love to a woman. You have to be slow and you have to be gentle. And I was like, is this some sort of piss take? This is like a sort of a cliche of how you would expect a French person to act. And they go, you know what? You are, you have a girlfriend? I said, yeah, I've got a girlfriend. You must take her to Paris. Take her for New Year. And I went, and I'd sort of fallen under their spell. Because <laughs> it was air and they were like amazing and really charming and sort of maverick. And I went, oh, right. Well, what would we do for New Year? And they basically gave me a fucking itinerary and told me the specific hotel I should stay in and all the things I should do. And do you know what? I did it. I went I went home and booked it that night, but the whole trip. <laughs> um, probably in my head thinking I'd probably encounter air and they'd remember it, but I never saw them again. But I did keep saying to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, that trip, this is where air told me to book. <laughs> this is where air said we should go to eat. So I was quite impressed with myself for that. Yeah, fair. Was it good? Did it uh, live up to expectation? Yeah, it was great. But yeah, it was really great. It was Montmartre, which is the, was the... Uh, sort of trendy kind of district of France. Maybe it still is. In fact, there was an album, a compilation album of great sort of French bands of that of that time, you know, Daft Punk and, and Air and Phoenix and so forth. And it was called My Place in Montmartre. So that was obviously where they all hung out. And, and that's where Air insisted I must book a very specific <laughs> hotel. <laughs> very specific hotel very specific thing i had to do and go to sacre coeur at new year's eve and all of this stuff and i just followed it as if they as if they were orders <laughs> excellent just heard you talk a little bit on tftm about some of the guitar bands that are out now that you're not particularly enamored with that six music push a lot like the likes of fontaine's dc and idols uh is that right yeah, I mean, again, it's like I said earlier, I think I think it's just an age thing and you see like sort of, you know, I suppose what you call punk posturing come round again and again. And um, I suppose what it is, is for me, pop music is, for me, it's about fun, you know, and it's always an endearing quality to not take yourself very seriously. And, you know, my, I suppose my favourite bands from the Beatles, um, are, you know, my absolute favourite band onwards, all had a thing where they had fantastic tunes and they were not taking themselves seriously. And that's just my personal taste. So when you look at bands who would describe themselves as punk bands, they're usually the opposite of that. They're usually very serious. They speak, you know, they they... they kind of posture as being serious and a bit edgy and the older you get the less you buy that shit do you know what i mean and so you sort of but that said if the songs are good who cares i i really don't care whatsoever how people behave but um yeah for me it's difficult six music i'm a huge fan of it but because it's so eclectic which it prides itself on it can be very jarring at times when you you're listening to I don't know, a BBO sound system, for example. And then that's followed by something by idols and they're kind of really shouting and it's very angular and noisy and, you know, earnest. And um, yeah. And for me, the lyrics are like, oh, right. Yeah. You've, you've just cottoned onto that area of social injustice. Yeah. Mm. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I don't really... I'm not really into it. But the, the vocal style for Fontaine DC, I can't really get on board with it. Don't, don't really like it. No, I mean, the thing is, ultimately, right, I'm 46 and I've sort of liked all sorts of different genres in my life. But ultimately, I like soul music and um, it doesn't mean I'm shut off to other sorts of music. But generally speaking, I just like soul music. That's what I listen to in my own time most of the time when I'm not listening to the radio. I like soul music. I like dance music. I like you know, I like disco music and I like everything, every genre associated with that. So when you talk about sound, the sort of, you know, the sonic experiences that I really enjoy, then, you know, you can see Luther Vandross over here, right, which is about as smooth a sound as you can imagine and is the sort of thing I love. And then you think of Idols or Fontaine's DC over there and sonically they're so opposed, it's really hard. But I think it's the way that our brains are wired. You know, I think that I, I, I don't know if there's any research about this or anything, but I think different people's brains uh, uh, respond to different sorts of noises. And I, I think it might literally be a, you know, a physical thing. And that some people and I think it might alter as well. Like, for instance, I never listened to jazz until like about two years ago. I used to think it was fucking ridiculous. Now I find myself listening to it a lot, especially when I'm working, because it sort of relaxes me and gets me like helps me achieve real focus. And I think there's something clinical going on there, and I'm not quite sure what. But um, yeah, my mind is just now kind of tuned into smoother sounds and and that kind of sound for me. You know what? I think I'm an old man now, so I just think <laughs> I, I'm not going to slag them off because people love them and it's great. But I just think to myself, that stuff's for the kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, mate, um, just one last one. It's a bit of a vague one that I sent you, but just if you had a funny story about interviewing one of the Gallagher brothers or just a big name in music, really. Yeah, uh, well, I did interview Noel Gallagher just about two, three years ago, which was very belated because, you know, there was a time I, I, that he would have been, him and his brother would have been top of my list. And really, if they're honest, most journalists' lists because there is no people... Uh, not just in music, but in any era of public life, who have delivered so consistently um, absolute elite-level interviews to anyone they've ever spoken to. I mean, they should be given some sort of knighthood or OBE for services to journalism because <laughs> they are just superb. And I remember just reading interviews from the NME, like occasionally the NME would publish like just an Oasis special and it would be like 10 years worth of interviews. And I'd read it like I was reading a comic. I would get these and I would just devour them and like laugh out loud, like be crying laughter like I was right, like I was reading a copy of Viz. They were so funny. And so I always wanted to interview both of them for different reasons. And for the big issue who I now write for, I've got a column in the big issue and occasionally they give me interesting interviews to do. And I was delighted when they asked a couple of years ago, we go and interview Noel Gallagher. And he was, yeah, everything I would want him to be. Uh, you know, I turned up, I pressed record. I might have set him off with one small question. And then after that, I just had, you know, what turned out to be about two hours worth. And the funny thing about that was when I went in, the um, the press woman sort of accosted me outside before I went into the room where he was sitting and said, I know you might have already been told this over email, but I can't stress to you enough. He does not want to talk about Liam. He does not want any of that. And I said, it's fine. It's old ground. Everyone's talk talked about that. It's done to death. I don't want to talk about that. And they said, okay. And I, I suppose a bit of me did, 
but I understood their point of view and I was respectful of it. And I thought, Joe, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's Noel Gallagher. You could talk to him about the fucking weather and it's still going to be absolute gold, you know? And uh, of course I go in and we get on quite well because it, it turned out, you know, we, we had a couple of mutual friends and he'd listened to me on talk. So he's a, he's a talk sport fanatic. And I, for quite a few years, presented on talk sport. So we kind of immediately, you know, there was a familiarity and I would say within 15 minutes, without any prompting from me, he had brought up Liam and just gone off on one about him <laughs> for like half an hour without me interject, being able to interject once. And the PR sitting in the room just looking horrified and confused <laughs> and me just loving it and thinking, well, my hands are clean. I didn't fucking prompt any of this. He just can't help himself. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was really great. I interviewed Tom York once for a TV thing I was doing. And he was really quite rude and hostile. It was actually when I was reporting for ITN about the war in Iraq and I was reporting on the stop the war efforts, the campaign groups that were formed. And, the, you know, there's various things going on to sort of campaign outside Parliament, mostly against going to war in Iraq. Tom York became quite a prominent figure in that. And I went down to interview him in Parliament Square. And he seemed, he struck me straight away, a bit like what I said about Black Rival Motorcycle Club, as a bloke who had decided that all journalists had, were working to a secret agenda dictated to them by Murdoch or some other shadowy, you know, um, press baron who was in the pocket of politicians <laughs> and all those conspiracy theories. And really, I was just some fucking dickhead who liked listening. <laughs> I was just some dickhead who liked listening to the Benz. Right. And, and and just took the opportunity to go and meet the bloke who sang the songs. And uh, he, but he was really like. It, it was him and. Um, I think it was uh, Ed O'Brien like was there and Ed O'Brien was very polite and kind. And every question I asked about the war, uh, Tom York made this motion like he was stirring a huge bowl of porridge while sneering at me. Wow. And in the end, I just said, I said, what are you? I just had to break off because Ed O'Brien looked awkward and uncomfortable. And I said, why are you doing that? Sorry, we're on camera. I said, sorry, what? what? Every time I ask you something, you do this thing for ages, right? And he goes, oh, you're just stirring the pot, aren't you? That's what your job is. You're stirring the pot. And I was like, literally, I've got no idea what you mean, but fine, whatever. And then, like, we just continued the interview and Ed O'Brien just answered all the questions and Tom York just sort of, you know, I, I could have said anything. I'd say, so, what, you know, what do you think, what, what do you think your chances are of actually succeeding in stopping the government going to war? You know, an innocuous, pretty softball question. And it was all this stuff. <laughs> like, you know, a, guffaw, a cynical guffaw, as if, yeah, you, did your paymasters tell you to ask that one? <laughs> and I'm like, mate, I don't fucking know. No one's like, I just was told to go down to Parliament and interview Tom York. We don't get briefed, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he was very like that. And that was a disappointment because I really am a huge Radiohead fan, as I, I suppose most right-minded people are. Mm. It's weird. It's like, why has he agreed to do press if he if he's got that yeah, attitude? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the interesting thing was in that, during that period in my career, I was doing shifts as a news reporter for ITN. So after my show had, had finished after a year, the, the 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 show called The Edit, they asked me to stay on and actually be like a sort of a traditional news reporter on like the seven o'clock news, where it's like Sam Delaney, Parliament Square. Um, 
which I wasn't very good at and didn't particularly enjoy, but I did it because I needed the work and it was quite interesting work as well. And, um, and so, but I was still writing. So, and I had sort of still had my kind of longish sort of pseudo brick pop Liam Gallagher hairdo. Right. Um, but in the daytime I would wear a suit because I had to, because I was on the news doing news reports and in, and in, in the evening I would finish and I would get changed and I would go to a gig and interview a band. So it was a, like a double life. And um, I think that sometimes if you're interviewing someone like uh, Tom York and you turned up in a suit, speaking in your best voice, minding your P's and Q's with an ITN cameraman with you, it, it maybe made him feel a little bit more cynical and hostile than had I turned up saying, hey, I'm here from The Guardian to interview you about your latest record. Maybe he would have been um, more open to discussing things with me. So things like that make a difference. But I remember doing a live two-way with the presenter who was Kirsty Young on another event. And I had one suit because I was young. I, you know, I had bought one suit to do this job. But what I didn't have was a nice overcoat for when you were doing pieces to camera outside and you wear a nice smart overcoat to go with it, don't you? But I didn't have one of those. Of course I didn't. I barely had a suit. But what I did have was a vintage Parker, like a proper old mod Parker, which was a 1960s US Army Vietnam jacket. And uh, and I was and I had this long hair and it was very cold. So my nose was bright red and my hair was everywhere and my eyes were watery from the cold. And while I was trying to stay focused and do a live two way with the presenter in the studio, the producer, who was quite a good laugh, was like speaking in my earpiece, saying to me, oh, we've just had an email in from one of our regular viewers saying, why is there a tramp presenting the news? And then I just thought, <laughs> yeah, this, this role, this job's not for me.